The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So excited about this show. I'm so glad that you could all join us. Our guest today is Jeff Alt, and he is a hiking expert. He's a motivational speaker, and he's an award-winning author. And I just finished his book. I believe it's in the fourth edition. It's called A Walk for Sunshine, and it talks about his experience hiking the Appalachian Trail, um, 147 days out on the trail. And we're going to talk to him today about some of the things that he experienced, some of the things that he learned. And of course, because it's Go Green Radio, we're going to hit on some important environmental topics as well. So welcome to Go Green Radio, Jeff. We're so glad to have you on the show. Oh, it's good to be with you today, Jill. Well, you know, many of our listeners are environmental activists, but they live in urban areas. And I'd love for you to talk to us about how living outdoors for most of the 2,160-mile trek of the Appalachian Trail shaped your views on the environment. Yeah, what an amazing experience. I mean, I walked through 14 states living nomadically for nearly five months, and it just taught me that the great outdoors is so simple yet so profound and nothing we create as humans can replace the dynamic and fragile environment that we that I experienced out there and it it's like the best thinking room ever i mean they're now backing up my my thoughts with research they're showing that by getting outside in the, the green and exercising in that environment is so healthy and it, and it inspires creativity. And I felt that. And every day you're walking and you're moving those positive brain chemicals. So you're having these euphoric thoughts and it's just, it's just amazing. And I also learned that we are part of the environment. I mean, so much of the wilderness travel, you, re, you relied on the communities along the way. So the people that, groom the trail, take care of the trail, pr- protect it, and maintain it, and cater to the hiker's needs are, were very much of the experience, and just helped reaffirm that we play a, a significant role in the environment, and, and it just reaffirmed that, you know, we need to preserve th- this trail in our park so that the next generation can enjoy and do the same. Absolutely. And I think that's an important thing that you just brought up, that we are part of the environment. We're not separate from it. We rely upon it. And uh, I, I, I love that. You know, prior to becoming a through hiker, which is what they call people who are actually going through the whole trail, you had some hiking and backpacking experience, both as a kid and then you mentioned also in the Army. And I'd like for you to talk to us about how those early experiences led you to the decision to hike the entire trail trail well my family 
we were a camping group, <laughs> so <laughs> we went down to the Great Smoky Mountain National Park, and I was just a, a young boy um, a, on the cusp of becoming a teenager, and my parents let my brothers and I head off into the forest up onto the Appalachian Trail on our own. Now, we were <laughs> ill-equipped. We weren't in the right condition, but we did it. And we were scared to death of the dark, what's out there, every little noise, you know. <laughs> we were, our, my muscles ached for days after that. And I was so thankful to be back with my parents the next night in a cooler full of food. <laughs> but <laughs> what happened was the seed was planted, um, you know, because we, we went out there, we did it, we conquered, you know. And, and, but then I grew up, I went into the service, and any like pleasant thoughts of hiking and backpacking were wiped away for a while. I mean, 3 a.m. wake-up calls, forced marches, wearing a poorly designed rucksack, digging fighting positions in the middle of the night, verbal abuse, all of that kind of wiped away pleasant memories of hiking outdoors for many years. And so then it wasn't until I got into college and um, thought I'd give this a crack again and headed back down to the Great Smoky Mountains and with my family once again and and it just kind of hit me. It all came together. And I decided, wow, I want to walk this trail. So that's how it kind of evolved. Well, and you were walking for a cause. It wasn't just a self-discovery, you know, tour. It was actually for a charitable cause. And I'd like for you to share the story of that organization for which you walked and how that uh, initial fundraiser has grown over the years. Yeah, uh, my brother, younger brother, was born with cerebral palsy, so he's physically unable to do all the things that I do outdoors. He's, he has spastic CP, so he can't control his muscles, and he's nonverbal and cognitively impaired. And I just can't imagine that disposition and having to be like that every day, and, and the thoughts he must have, but he can't share them, or the dreams he must want to fulfill, but can't fill them. So... I decided to share my dream of walking the trail with him, and he's been in a home called Sunshine since the age of 13 because he's so medically fragile that we physically and humanly couldn't give all the medical care he needed. And this home has just been phenomenal, and, and they support over 900 people with developmental disabilities. And so I thought, well, why not walk for them and my brother? And so I brought the idea up, and they thought it was a brilliant idea, and so it, it turned out to be more than a walk for myself. It became a walk for Sunshine, which gave me the inspiration to keep going because currently when two to 3,000 people try to do this trail of year, only 25% complete it. 75% do not finish their journey. And knowing that I was walking for my brother and, and I could see him in my mind, you know, it, it, on those days where I'd rather have gone inside because it's pouring down rain or, um, or I tripped and fell and I'm laying there in a mud puddle. You know, I would just think of him and I'd get right back up and keep going. And, but what I didn't realize was my sojourn created this annual event. Some local folks said, hey, let's make this an annual 5K event. And lo and behold, we just, just last weekend celebrated our 18th Sunshine Walk. We raised to date a half a million dollars wow. and nearly a thousand people came out and walked and ran with us and, and rolled with the residents in little Toledo, Ohio, where I was born and raised. And it's just, you know, it's just amazing that any one of us that has 
a positive idea that would help a community or it's for a good cause, by taking that initial step, you, you're, I'm just blown away at how this has evolved. So any one of us has the ability to do that. Uh, it's a great story. It's a great story, and congratulations on the success of that annual event. Now, as I was going through the book, A Walk for Sunshine, um, you had quite a few run-ins with wildlife <laughs> while you were on the trail. And I love you're such a good storyteller. I loved the book, and I highly recommend it to anybody who loves a great, great story. It's called A Walk for Sunshine, and it's easy to find on Amazon. Tell us uh, two or three of your favorite animal encounters. <laughs> well, I, I started my journey down in Georgia, and the weather quickly turned cold. So by the second night in the woods, um, I mean, it, the temperature had plummeted to 20 degrees. So I amble into this four-walled shelter. Most hikers stay in three-walled shanties all along the Appalachian Trail. And this is an old ranger's cabin, and there's a plank bunk that you've rolled your bedroll out and you're, put your sleeping bag on top of that. And I had gone through my daily routine of, um, you know, switching into some dry clothes and getting some water from the stream nearby, or the, I'm sorry, the spring, and cooking my dinner and um, hanging my food from animals for the night. And I, I had just written in my journal, and this I was doing that every day as I walked along, and and I'm so tired that as soon as I zip in my sleeping bag, I fade off to sleep. And there, there are no streetlights out there. I mean, you are in the thick, dark forest, high up in the mountain. And it was an overcast night, so even the moon wasn't providing any light. It's just pitch black. And, and I, I feel something on top of me, and I open my eyes, and it's real. It isn't a dream. There is something crawling on me. So I, I nervously reach over. My heart is, is beating, and, and I'm scared. I turn my headlamp on, aim it down. There is a skunk on my sleeping bag. <laughs> oh, no. So my first reaction was that I kick it, and it jumps off, and the tail goes up in the air. Now I think it's going to spray me. So instead, it runs underneath the floorboard. So I think I can outwit this little critter. So I pull a candle out that I carried as a, a secondary light source, and I light it and place it nearby, thinking the light will keep it away. Well, apparently not. Apparently, it, it was able to see a little better because it jumps <laughs> back up on my sleeping bag, kneads it like a cat, and plunked down between my knees. And I slept all night with a skunk. I, I was just, from that day forward, I was like, wow, they're just like cats of the woods. All they wanted was like a snuggly place to, to sleep, and it didn't mean to harm me at all. So I, I always, when I smell that, that odor in the country from uh -huh. a skunk, I have positive memories. So. <laughs> and then, you know, I did encounter so many wild creatures out there. I'm walking through Pennsylvania, and, and I always would try to find a, a, a beautiful view to stop for lunch midday, or if not, at least along a stream so I could replenish my water. And on this one particular day, I'm up on a ridge, and I'm beneath the canopy all day. So, it's, so I finally come across a view, and it was actually where an old um, utility line used to run up and over the mountain, but it was a clean cut straight down the mountain. So it was pretty cool because you could see all the way down the mountain, and you could see the, kind of the terrain and the geological rock formations. And so I sat there, and I pulled the bagel out and put some peanut butter on it and squirted some honey on top of that, and I'm drinking some water, and... and I finished my lunch, and, and I, I go to stand up, and I had that feeling that something was staring at me. And it's where you, you don't know what it is, but you can just feel it. And I'm like, what is that? 
I'm looking all around, and then I, down between these rocks, right next to me, the entire time I was eating lunch was a coiled-up rattlesnake. Oh, my and, gosh. Oh, my gosh. I, I, uh, every step was, was carefully taken the rest of the day. Holy uh, so that, that got my attention. And then there was a, an encounter up in Maine. I'm in the last few weeks of my adventure. I've been walking through 13 states. I'm in the final state. I mean, I'd lost 30-some pounds. I'm, I'm like, part of the, the, the outdoors. I've morphed into this is my world. But mm-hmm. I hadn't seen a moose. And I'm, I, you're in moose country the last 500 miles of the Appalachian Trail. And these are the largest mammals on the eastern seaboard. I mean, they're yeah. huge. But they were nowhere in sight. But you knew they were there because there's moose poo everywhere. <laughs> and I'm not just talking a dropping here or there. I'm talking you know, piles the size of softballs. So <laughs> my joking banter, and I used humor to get me through a lot of rough days, and so I called it the Bullwinkle Conspiracy. I pictured this big moose <laughs> hiding behind a tree and laughing as I passed by, you know, and, and because how could this big creature not be visible? And But you knew they were there. So it wasn't until, like, the last few days, I leave a shelter early in the morning, and the way a hiker knows you're the first Thing on the trail in the morning is you're eating cobwebs because even the deer and the moose and the bear haven't ha- haven't broken through all that yet and and it's that quiet time of morning where the sub canopy is kind of subdued by the morning dew and and there's the pleasant birds chirping and so I'm walking along in the stillness of the morning and all perked up from breakfast and then out of the silence comes this crashing cracking tree branch snapping noise. I'm like, oh my gosh, only a moose could make such noise. So I stop and I get out my camera and I, I'm just ready to take the best picture I can. When out from the, the tree line comes this big bear and it's coming right towards me. Oh. Everything I learned what to do when you encounter a bear is out the window. I'm just frozen space <laughs> looking at it. I mean, it was too close to even react. And the bear apparently didn't know I was there because it all of a sudden abruptly stops and we're just kind of looking at each other. So I'm thinking it's not going to harm you. I'm about to snap a picture when I hear something behind it and look up and there are two cubs behind mama. Oh, and I'm thinking, oh gosh, she, my flash might provoke her to attack me, um, you know, to protect the cubs. So sure. I am really scared at this point. So um, what seemed like forever was just a few seconds. The bear darts it off into another direction, and the cubs follow. And my heartbeat returns to normal, and I start walking down the trail again. And then a few moments later, I hear the cracks and snaps of trees, similar to what I just heard moments ago. And I'm thinking, Mama's coming back to show those cubs how to how to take my food from my backpack. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, again, my heart's racing, and out from the trees emerged a moose. And, and I just couldn't believe it. So I, I took the best pictures I could at that moment, but I, I kind of joked to myself that our, our creator has a sense of humor, and, and that bear was laughing. So uh, oh, That's so a great I, story. There's so many great stories in the book, A Walk for Sunshine. I highly recommend it. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, there's much, much more with Jeff Alt. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this.
news, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Up Close with Chris Tinney is now on Voice America Variety. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, Chris brings you the thought leaders, activists, and socially responsible entrepreneurs taking action for the environment, doing business in a new way, and helping the underprivileged. Call in or listen in every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, and learn how the small decisions you make today have a big impact on our small planet in the future. Tune in to Up Close with Chris Tinney on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all tune in with us today. Our guest, if you're just tuning in, is Jeff Alt. And actually, I would recommend that you get out on his web website. It's Jeff Alt. That's A L T. dot com, and you can find out all about what he does. I mean, he's a he's an expert hiker, but he's also a speaker. He's an author. He you know works with the National Park Service. There's so much that he does, and he's on with us today. And we were just talking in the last segment about some of his adventures in walking the 2,160 miles of the Appalachian Trail. Um, But, you know, this is Go Green Radio, so we're going to talk about some environmental issues as well. And over the past seven years of hosting Go Green Radio, the topic of overconsumption has come up a lot. And we've had a lot of guests who come on and discuss the environmental implications of overconsumption. And, Jeff, when you were out on the trail, you carried a 50-pound pack with just the bare essentials included. Um, And I'm wondering if that experience of living for months on end with just the minimal possession shaped your consumption patterns? I mean, do you think there's value in having people replicate that experience of minimalistic living every once in a while? Oh, yeah. It it really impacted my whole way of living. At first, when I came home, there was an adjustment period, so there were, I was a little withdrawn. Um, Streetlights burned my eyes. Lawnmower engines were too loud, you know. But mm-hmm. as I in, in, you know, implemented back into everything domestic society, one thing that remained was I didn't want clutter. 
I, I only wanted the basics. Um, I wanted to live where I could walk everywhere. I, I wanted to be able to walk to a restaurant instead of driving everywhere. And to this day, that is our mantra. I, you know, I don't want stuff. I, I want enjoyment. Um, I want uh, the more clutter I, I learn we have, the harder it is to transition, move, and enjoy. And the more glued you are to, to objects. And, like, we're raising our children to appreciate the moment, the view, the experience, not the stuff or the video game or the app. So it just altered my whole world in such an amazing way. And, you know, we we only have so much time until our body puts roadblocks up into what we can do. And so I realize there's so much out there that I haven't done, even though I've done a lot, there's so much to explore. So I, living simply and minimally is, is probably the healthiest thing that, that I've learned to do with my own life. I love that. You know, I, as I was as I was going through your book and all of the physical hardships that you endured, you know, I know that you talked somewhat about your training process in the book, but how in the world do you train your body and your mind to hike 2,160 miles? I mean, it just seems unfathomable to me. Talk to us about your process. Well, it is a gut check. Anything that seems to be a huge hurdle, you, you internally have to really want to do it. And there's some amazing folks out there that have. There was a blind person that walked the whole trail. Who, there, there was a, um, a grandma um, of 13 children who hiked trail for the first time at the age of 65. Wow. So you can overcome huge um, you know, stumbling blocks if you really want to do something. But then ask any athlete. And they'll tell you that you need to train. That's the key to success. So about six months out, I started, you know, a regimen of walking and carrying a pack. In addition to cross-training with my typical, like, running and gym kind of workout, um, I attended lectures and, and clinics on other, other hikers who had accomplished such feats just to get any tips they had to offer. Always learn from someone who's already been there. Um, and what, what maybe didn't work for them or what did so you don't make the same mistakes. And, um, and then you get all, there's lots of good literature out there from the Appalachian Trail Conservancy, which is the main organization that, that um, supports the Appalachian Trail and the volunteers that maintain it. And then as I got closer to like three months out from the adventure, I took a, they call a shakedown hike where you take all your gear and you go out and just make sure the stove lights, the, the boots fit, the, the tent, you can erect it, you know, and so, so you know, this whole process, though, is building your confidence that I can do this because it is mm-hmm. probably more mental than physical at times. It's just that drive to keep going, you know, because I witnessed people that had, you know, all the financial resources necessary and the physical ability, but mentally they just said, nah. So it, you know, that's where it is more mental. Um, but it, but training can also prevent injuries. So if you're strengthening those muscles, you're less likely to injure yourself, and um, and it just builds your confidence. And then there's um, I had to plan out supply boxes. I had 22 of them mailed to towns along the route. I established my family to be my command and control, where you know I would report back to them and mail them my journals, and they would field you know, any personal affairs that I had that I couldn't tend to while I was gone. So it does take, you know, some planning and you are stepping away from society. So it's 
kind of similar to perhaps maybe a, a military deployment to some degree where you're gone for that period of time. And, um, you know, so you just have to think, you know, long term. And once you, once you start thinking out six months, it, it, then break it down into what I need to do and outline and make notes, it, then it's just a process. Well, it's an inspiring process. And, and again, I recommend to all of our listeners the book, A Walk for Sunshine. It is an amazing story. You know, the last time that we talked about Appalachia on Go Green Radio, we were talking with a woman who's uh, an activist in Kentucky. Her name's Terry Blanton. And we were discussing a form of coal mining there called mountaintop removal or MTR. Uh, they use dynamite to remove coal from the upper parts of the mountains. And many times it reduces the height of the mountains by several hundred feet Um, and then you know when it rains the water pollution that comes down from you know all of those chemicals that are released during that process um, comes down into the valleys and there's actually been quite a few instances of some pretty serious human health problems and I know that the Appalachian Trail doesn't pass through Kentucky but I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on MTR in parts of Appalachia that you'll share with our listeners. Yeah and I'm not technically a true expert on the topic, but I do have like a minor uh, thematic sequence in environmental science. So I, I've studied up a little bit and I'm aware of it. And my family also, our heritage goes back to um, West Virginia, Appalachia. And so, it, so it's, it's near and dear to my heart, this topic. And, but it doesn't take a lot of uh, heavy scientific knowledge to know that this is, this is destructive. Um, I mean, uh, hundreds and hundreds of mountaintops have suffered this damage and I personally think some serious regulations need to be put in place to limit this, this technique. I mean, I understand the need for energy, but for a short-term gain of profit is, is just, I mean, you're permanently altering Earth's geologic formations. You're, that, you know, over million, they formed over millions of years. And, I mean, you're, you're flushing out wildlife and you're clear-cutting entire mountaintops. And we know, just going back to, for example, like, the Great Smoky Mountains, it was the clear-cutting of the forest that inspired folks to push to make that a national park because it was so devastating. And even now, even though it, it, they, they were able to save some of the original old growth, some species of trees have still not grown back. Now, that's, mm-hmm. I think that's minor in comparison to actually removing the land. You're permanently altering the landscape forever. Mm-hmm. So that, that's my two senses. That, that we should take a pause, you know, before we do something like that to what we're leaving for the next generation. Well, and I think that a lot of the people there, you know, were at first convinced that it was worth it because there would be a lot of jobs with the mining industry. And what they're finding is, is that MTR is actually a highly mechanized way of removing coal and that there really aren't that many jobs. Um, so, you know, I think that a lot of people share your view for a number of different reasons, but uh, certainly from a, a wildlife and from a land preservation standpoint. You know, many of our listeners are either members of or at least aware of, certainly, the Sierra Club, which was founded by John Muir. And you walked over 200 miles with your wife to hike the John Muir Trail in California. How did that hike compare to the terrain and the conditions that you faced on the Appalachian Trail? Well, I must say that the John Muir Trail is one awesome adventure. It's pure it's rugged, like John Muir himself. I mean, what a great trail to, to dedicate to the father of our national parks. 
Um, comparing and contrasting, I've done this a lot. Uh, the first, you're above altitude in this Sierra, um, uh, over 10,000 feet most of the time. So acclimating to the altitude was a big issue for me. I, I Hiking in the east, that was a huge transition because the, the eastern Appalachians are below 7,000 feet. You're in the highest is over 6,000, and so you don't ever have altitude issues. Um, the John Muir Trail, you're fording streams nearly every day. Matter of fact, some of the streams are, are, can be very difficult in the early spring, so I, I even waited till later in the season just to let the snow melt simmer down because they can be dangerous. And, and I was hiking with my wife, and this was her first adventure ever with a pack on her back. Um, so that was a big thing. And, and the, other, the other striking difference was we, you'd start off, you'd wake up in the morning in the Sierras, and, and there's ice on your tent. I mean, it's 30, <laughs> below freezing. It's like 30 degrees, 28 degrees. And then by midday, it's 100 degrees, and it's that <laughs> dry heat but it's all oh, you, you have no you're above the tree so there's uh, it's hard to find shelter and it just beats you down so i learned it we would take a siesta midday and just find some shade and we'd wait out the hot hot high part of the day and then hike into the evening just to beat the heat mm-hmm. whereas the at you start off and it's really cold in the spring and still some snow and then it gradually heats up to the peak of summer and it's very humid wet hot and then you come into fall. So, the, so a lot of striking differences. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's that you know sort of almost desert environment where you have that big delta between the nighttime temperatures and the daytime temperatures. Um, there's a lot of places in California that have that phenomenon. So, um, actually, I'm going to try and train for that trail with my husband, and uh, I'll get back to you in a couple of years. See if we can make oh, it. Oh, <laughs> well, well, it's a great adventure you will never regret. <laughs> well, we're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, folks, we have so much more with Jeff. So please don't go away. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. 
stimulating talk. It gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. In case you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Jeff Alt. You can check out his website, and you really should. It's jeffalt.com. He's the author of several books. The one that I just finished is called A Walk for Sunshine, and it details his journey along the Appalachian Trail, 2,160 miles, which just seems like a superhuman feat. And we're talking about a lot of the life lessons that he has learned, not just from that hiking adventure he's had so many more he's now an expert hiker and helps other people who are getting into the the activity Jeff you're a big proponent of getting kids out on hiking trails and you know we talk about this on Go Green Radio we're in the midst of a global urbanization movement where people are moving from rural areas to urban areas around the world talk to our listeners about the benefits that you believe children will gain by not just getting outside but by hiking yeah, introducing the kids to hiking is um, you're, you're helping them take steps literally and figuratively in the right direction. I mean, sloth-like indoor play is competing with a good old-fashioned romp in the natural outdoors. And and I've come to realize, we've come to realize, it's our, our role as parents to help our own children appreciate the simple things that only nature can provide. I mean, and the research shows childhood obesity is at an all-time high. Um, most children will be exposed to computers at, at as young as two. Um, and so there's a real push and pull with, with these kids are pulled for the entertainment fact value of the electronic gadgets instead of just getting outside and, and cause it's so healthy for their brains. And, but we as caregivers and parents, um, play a critical role at this time point in time where, um, if you introduce outdoor play at that very young age, you can have a huge impact. And, um, cause what you do with kids in the first years of life, it, it will, will affect them forever. I mean, uh, 90% of the child's brain is fully formed by age five. And you can be part of the positive influence during that quick, fast formation. And sometimes people don't realize it because kids aren't as verbal as they are when they're older, but they're absorbing everything. So and it's working. We, we've been doing this as parents, and we know we're doing it, and it works. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are a lot of parents who grew up without any knowledge of camping or hiking or backpacking. Um, but I think that that's okay because a lot of parents grew up without any knowledge of good nutrition and they're feeding their kids organic food and they grew up um, not having anybody, you know, role model things like, you know, local shopping and, and things like that, but they're teaching their kids that. So I think it's possible even for parents who don't have a background with those topics to learn in order to teach their children. Do you have some advice for parents if they want to start a family tradition of getting out on the trails? You can start at home, just making it part of your daily ritual. After dinner, we go for a walk. So as simple as just stepping out the front door. 
Um, and you can acquire a, a child carrier for birth to six month, a little front carrier that you can buy at most children supply outlets. And um, then as the child gets older, you, you might want to, uh, like six months or older, check in with a, an outfitter and you can get a, a good backpack fitting child carrier. And you can use that till about two and a half years old when they're starting to walk on their own. And then when they start walking, let them lead. They're not, they're just learning to walk. So you don't want to drag them down the trail. Just kind of follow them. You may not get more than a couple hundred yards, but if you let them lead, then they control the adventure. And that is called, it's just like child-directed play. It's child-directed hiking where if they stop, they want to throw a rock in the creek or splash in the creek, you know, let them safely keep them from drowning or getting too deep out there and just keep them on the shore with you. But let them kind of direct what they're, whatever they're interested in, just Go with it as long as it's safe and, and fun. And as long as they're having fun, they're going to want to go again. Mm-hmm. So that's the mantra, not to get to the top of the mountain, but to make sure my kid has so much fun that they'll want to go again. You know, pack their favorite snack. Kids like food just like we do, but snack time's huge. Whatever you're doing inside, just bring it outside. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, we taught our kids, we potty trained them outdoors and indoors at the same time. And they thought that was pretty cool, going to the bathroom outdoors, you know, so it was headed <laughs> to the adventure. And, and then you can use the indoor, um, you know, websites and things to show them the park you're going to go to and get them excited before you even get there. Absolutely. Now, you know, a lot of our schools have some focus on environmental education. Some schools are trying to do outdoor education, but of course, budget is always an issue. What advice do you have for schools and teachers who want to provide some outdoor education for kids? Well, yeah, you can easily tie pretty much the outdoors into all aspects of the curriculum. Um, take your students outside whenever possible to use real trees and rocks and whatever's right there around the building itself even just to get them outside. Um, submit grants for field trips to wilderness areas and parks. Um, uh, participate in a park science project. Um, you can use the indoor technology um, by the smart boards, you know, to get onto the nationalparkservice.gov websites and explore parks that way. Um, and there's a new initiative, the National Park Service and the executive branch of the government this year has a program. It's, it's called Every Kid in a Park. And right now it's rolled out to all fourth graders, families with fourth graders, get a free National Park Pass. This is like a, I think, a 80 or $100 value. I'm not sure exactly. Yeah. But, it, I mean, so if I was a teacher... I would add that to my parent blog, especially a fourth grade teacher, you know, to let parents know, give them the web link, and you can Google every kid in a park, and this, you'll find the link, and it's as easy as just applying for it, and they mail you the pass, so, you know, That's just, cool. Oh, yeah. We're going to put that out on our, our newsletter. I Besides being the host of Go Green Radio, I'm the founder of the Go Green Initiative, which is an environmental education program that works with schools in all 50 states. So I'm glad that you brought that up. We're going to make sure everybody gets that information. You know, one of the things that I noticed, you know, as I was reading A Walk for Sunshine, and, and it was really inspiring, there's... You know, a lot of cool gear that you use, but you also had a really great way of paring that down. You know, when I go into certain stores that sell this stuff, sometimes it's very pricey, but I'm sure there must be a way to 
get involved in hiking and backpacking, even if you're on a budget. What advice do you have for folks who want to do this, but just, you know, can't plunk down $300 for a tent? Yeah, well, first, before you get, jump into it and, and spend a lot of money, you can borrow and rent gear. Universities rent the gear out of their outdoor centers. Um, some outfitters rent gear. And then there's also outfitters will have these gear swaps where you can go sell your used gear. And then just send it, just use your social media and say, hey, I'm going backpacking this weekend. Does anybody have a pack I can borrow? So, so there's ways around that to keep cut your corners just until you start getting into this. But the only thing is I wouldn't skip on footwear. I would definitely make sure I have a, a, a pair of shoes that fits me right and has the correct sole because you don't want to injure yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can make gear, too. I mean, there's hikers that are making pop can stoves out of pop cans and using denatured alcohol to cook off of. And that's relatively, almost literally free. Um, you know, there's hikers that have made tents using Tyvek used in construction. Um, so you can really find some ways to cut corners that way. And um, Now, that said, if, if this becomes a, a, a sport that you really enjoy and want to keep doing, I still use the gear from my thru-hike now. I mean, it's an investment into your, into your lifestyle, not just a sport, but because it's so healthy to get out there, and some of the quality gear that, that you do acquire lasts forever. So, mm-hmm. like the backpacks and the tents and things like that. Now, clothing, I don't really, you know, you don't have to get the name brand clothing. You can find that. It just You want non-cotton synthetic clothing from, you know, you can get that pretty much in any store. You don't have to have the main name logos. So, mm-hmm. um, you can cut corners that way. Sounds good. You know, again, because we are on Go Green Radio, I want to talk a little bit about climate change because I know that um, the Appalachian Trail Conservancy Board of Directors um, in 2008, which was 10 years after you made the, the trek, they adopted a climate change resolution and there were several things that they committed to. And I, I just want to ask you, what are some of the expected climate change impacts to the Appalachian Trail? And have you actually noticed any of these changes taking place already? Well, yeah, and, and I have previewed the, the Appalachian Trail's, um, um, their climate change statement and what they're looking for in monitoring. And not only theirs, but there's, there's two national parks along the Appalachian Trail, the Shenandoah National Park and the Great Smoky Mountain National Park. And they all have similar, very similar um, processes in place. But what they're looking for is the impacts of more droughts, more rainfall and severe storms, increased forest fires, increased invasion of exotic species, and then the changing of the seasons and, and all that being altered. And um, I, I, I guess of all of that, um, I, I know we've all probably noticed uh, um, the weather patterns um, being a little off. The one thing I guess I would say is the, that I've noticed is the invasion of exotic species. Now, some of these, it's been going on since the early 1920s, but... Um, so I don't know. I'm not. I'm not an expert to know is that because of climate change or not. But there are a, the parks are are battling several non-native invasive species introduced by humans, such as the the kadzu plant. The eastern hemlocks are dying from a non-native insect called the hemlock woolly adelgid. 
Um, and they've been fighting that since the 1920s, but most recently it's finally just taking its toll. These giant 500-year-old trees are dying, and it's just mm. so sad. These, and the, the fear there is that um, the, the, the shade cover that they gave to the fragile higher elevation environments will go away and the, the fragile wildlife and plants that, you, you know, survive beneath that canopy will, will be altered. So that's a mm-hmm. huge concern. Um, and so the, the, not only um, the two national parks I mentioned, but the Blue Ridge Parkway is also feeling the effects of the ham, hemlock. Um, well, the co- one cool thing, though, is um, uh, the Smokies are involving the youth in schools to help monitor, scientifically monitor and watch for any of these changes. So they're, mm-hmm. it, they're, all the parks are, are picking their fragile environments, like the Shenandoah salamander, only, only found in the Shenandoah National Park. The, the scientists in the park there are monitoring, um, is, how is this creature doing? Because those are the, the exotic, fragile species are the first to go if the climate's altering. So um, they have some things in place there. And then in the Smokies, the native brook trout, um, you know, they'll be directly impacted by some of this. So um, it'll be interesting to see what does happen. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and I did yeah. notice that they were, you know, they were putting monitoring um, programs in place and also encouraging different ways to lower the carbon footprint of the of the trail itself, encouraging people to take mass transit, um, you know, encouraging renewable energy options and things like that. So I think it's great um, to involve the public and, and to, like you said, keep an eye out, take some scientific measurements. We've got to take another commercial break, but when we come back, we have much more with Jeff Alt. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information, about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Thank you. 
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. In case you've just tuned in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Jeff Alt. He's an award-winning author of several books, and the one that I just finished is A Walk for Sunshine, um, which talks about his trek on the more than 2,000 miles he spent on the Appalachian Trail in 1998. But since then, he's written some other books, and I want to bring us up to speed with your most recent release, Jeff, um, The Adventures of Bubba Jones. And I know that this is a, a series for kids. Talk to us about the format of that book and and what the, the purpose of that book that series will be. Yeah, this has been a blast to put together. Um, it, this is a National Park time travel series, and the, it, w- it was written the first in many books to follow to inspire kids to visit our parks. And the first book that came out is based on the Great Smoky Mountain National Park, and that's the most visited in the nation. Um, but time travel engages kids. You know, I mean, What's fun about this is, is it pulls them in because instead of just sitting there and listening, it engages them. I mean, you're going back and, and you're meeting the founders of the park. You're, you're going back and witnessing the animals that once lived there that are now extinct. You're learning all about the park, so it's loaded with historical facts, but it's done in this, like, I'm here and, and I'm, I'm standing before this buffalo or I'm camping with the Cherokee Indians high up in the mountains and... And so they're learning about science and ecology, and um, so there's even a mystery in there, and there's and there's characters that they can assimilate with. So the main character is Bubba Jones, and he has a sister Hugabug, and these are their trail names. But um, so it it, it empowers kids and it empowers girls. Um, You know, Hugabug after meeting one of the very first female solo through hikers on the Appalachian trail decides now she's going to hike the Appalachian trail. And so, <laughs> That's awesome. yeah, so it, it, it's been a blast to put together and hopefully getting kids out there and wanting to actually go themselves and they initiate, Hey mom, dad, let's, let's head to this park. Well, and it sounds like some great historical fiction. What are the age ranges that these books will be appropriate for? It's, it was designed for third grade and up. It is a chapter book. Um, mm-hmm. And it can be used, you know, as part of a curriculum, but really it's meant for the, the kids to pick up. You know, if you're, if you're solidly reading at the fourth grade level, you'll easily read this book. But even adults are enjoying it because it kind of gives families a roadmap on what to do when you get to the park. So we, mm-hmm. we're going through the park to, to all the hot spots of the cool things to see and explore and learn. Mm-hmm. Now, talk to us a little bit more about how you envision these books being used in schools, though, because a lot of our listeners are involved in some way, shape, or form with environmental education, and they're always looking for great resources. And sometimes um, the books that we see out there are a little dry, and these, just based on the fact that you're a fantastic storyteller. I know that these books are going to be great. So talk to us about how, whether it's teachers or informal environmental educators might be able to use these in schools. Well, the book does have a curriculum guide. And so we, you know, we've 
went through and uh, matched up areas of the curriculum. So there are aspects of the book that fit into social studies and the culture, science, um, geography. So you can hit on all those areas. Um, and even math, With we have a problem-solving mystery that they're trying to decode. The, the, the message that Lewis and Clark, the secret codes Lewis and Clark used when they explored the U.S. to communicate back to the um, President of the United States, we're using some mystery code like that. So um, and kids like that. They like mystery, and, and, and it engages them. But um, so there's... You know, there's lots of aspects of the curriculum it ties into, and I've been going in and speaking to classrooms, actually, and, and I'll do a live narration, and then I have some props, and I let kids act out the scenes as I read it. So it, and it, it just engages them all the more because then they're part of the story. And the new generation, they want to be part of this. They don't just want to sit and watch and listen. They want to touch and feel and go. And so that's what this does. And... And it ties right in with what what the parks are trying to do with kid in it, the kids in every park initiative is is inspiring them because we I know from hiking the trail that I was inspired from within to do the trail. If kids find that this is cool, then they're inspired within that they want to take the initiative. That's half the battle right there. And then the other half is just getting their parents to go. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, and I even read, I'm going to be visiting a school in Newark, New Jersey. It's an inner city urban school. But one of the things that they do, um, it's a all-male Catholic school and the incoming freshmen all hike the 55 miles of the Appalachian Trail um, that goes through their state of New Jersey uh, in the summertime before they actually start school and I just think that's so so cool. That is very cool, and I remember hiking that section of the Appalachian Trail. <laughs> no, that's yeah. T- taking advantage of your local region, whatever trails are are there, is so important. Is an educator, um, you know, in gets, getting these kids out to explore. Sometimes it's the first time kids have gotten out there, and the impact you have. I've seen it is so powerful, and it's life altering. And in you know, the seeds planted young will carry over into adulthood. I believe that. I absolutely believe that. Now, in the moments that we have left, we have a couple minutes left in the show, I'd love for you to give our listeners two or three concrete actions that they can take this month to begin their own quest to hit the trails near their home. Sure, yeah. Well, walking is probably the cheapest and simplest form of exercise there is. But forget the word exercise. Um, it decreases your stress. It increases your creativity. Um, two things that you, you, you want to eliminate stress for your career, whatever you're in, but you also want to be creative. So it does that for you. Walking among the wild outdoors is proven way better than walking in an indoor gym track. Um, so your, your positive mental thinking will, will come alive. Um, but what I recommend is making it simple, just making it part of your daily mantra um, and making it time to catch up with with your, your spouse or um, your family or, or your friends, you know, so meeting up or at a certain time every day at, at 6.30 or whenever works, and you just carve out that time as sacred time and make it a habit, and it, eventually it becomes a healthy habit. And, and, you know, just walk out the front door. Don't make it too complicated. Keep it simple because if you add layers of complication, then you tend to start to come up with excuses. Just simply walk. Here's where I'll be. Um, 
and then and get a good pair of shoes. Start basic. You know, learn of the basics. Uh, you know, the water. You need snacks and all that. If you're going to go out further, but just simply the act of walking to start. And research, you know, on the web or um, there's some great websites that will show you all the trails around you. All the parks have great websites of their trails. You know, and then you could make, make a trip, uh, make a hike date with someone, whatever it is. Um, use that as, as you're, like, working up to that. Um, mm-hmm. You're training all week. And then head out on the weekend to that trail that you've trained for. So that, that's I the payoff. It. And um, you, you want to go back again and again. Absolutely. You've been such an inspiration. You're a great role model. I invite all of our listeners to get out on jeffalt.com. Thank you for joining us and thanks to our listeners for joining us. We'll be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.